great. Good vibes only. Yes. Good vibes only. We are the good vibes, spooky good vibes podcast. <laughs> you know, actually, that's that's not a bad way of describing us. That's, let's I mean, be real. It's really close. Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost. I mean, host. Ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Horror Vanguard. I am one half of the show. I'm your co-ghost, Ash, joined as always by by the by the other co-ghost, John. John, how's it going? This is easily the best introduction you've ever done on this entire am, show. Oh, I'm so smooth today. This is so good. I am very well. I'm very excited for another fantastic episode coming right up. We are joined today by fantastic author Leela Taylor of the upcoming book, Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul. Leela, how's it going? Going good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so oh, much for welcome. coming Anytime. on the show. Uh, you are the author of the upcoming book, uh, as, as I just mentioned, Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul. Can you tell us and our, our listeners a little bit about yourself, a little bit about the book, and when and where they can pick it up from uh, fine publishers and booksellers? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I am a new writer. This is actually my first book. Uh, but I've been uh, studying and writing and thinking about um, what the Gothic um, means in African-American culture. And it started off as sort of an exploration of goth, uh, like black gothics, and, and what it was like being um, sort of a, a twice marginalized, you know, being a, a minority within the subculture. And um, what I realized is there, you know, there really is no difference between black goths and white goths or Latino goths or, you know, uh, Japanese goths, because goths all like the same stuff. They listen to the, <laughs> you know, same music and dress the same, and that's kind of the point of being in it. But um, the difference was uh, black goths were living the experience of being black in America, and that's what the difference was, as in any other um, subculture or any other group of people. Um, and that was the difference, um, the personal experience of... Um, being marginalized in that way. And so I started asking myself, um, what is Gothic about the Black experience? And I think that's more Gothic than people really think or imagine. I think people think of um, America's Gothic as Southern Gothic mm -hmm. and uh, and the literature of Southern Gothic and William Faulkner and things like that, yeah. um, which is about the uh, sort of lingering effects of um, slavery in the South and dealing with the ramifications of that and and uh, the trauma of that. But it's coming from a white perspective, you know. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, I was looking at the history and the experience of oppression and violence historically in this country um, from the very foundation, you know, from the, from the very beginnings of the slaughter of the Native people here um, to slavery um, and all its lingering effects and all the residual trauma of that and all of that anxiety and 
that uh, repressed guilt that this country has about that. I think that is what makes the Gothic aesthetic in the culture, in the music, in literature, in film, and in art, um, that sort of persistent anxiety and fear and trauma that has come from the Black experience since the slave trade. I think that's how um, the Gothic is manifested in our culture. So I kind of think of American Gothic as basically just Black history in this country. Mm. And, um, and I talk a little bit about sort of a part memoir, part cultural criticism, a little history. And I talk about me being a, you know, growing up as a Black kid in Detroit, uh, a goth kid in Detroit. Um, so there's some of, of my own experiences with um, goth as a subculture and my own experiences of um, racism um, and how those things tie into, you know, sort of a larger discussion about, you know, about the culture, I suppose. So that's kind of where I was going with, with that and where that kind of came from. Yeah, that's fantastic. And this is definitely I think this is a great time for this text to be coming out. And it's definitely something that's needed in the greater Gothic discourse. Uh, When uh, when is the book officially going to be out and uh, where where can our listeners pick it up? Um, It's out November 12th and it's through Repeater, Repeater Press. Mm -hmm. So I think it can be pre-ordered there or pre-ordered for any of your local Mm -hmm. bookstore of your choice. I'm not saying the A word. (laughs) Yes, we we have an aversion to that word as well. (laughs) Yes. Um, So pre-order from Repeater itself. We'll have the official uh, uh, Repeater books pre-order and order link in our uh, show notes. Nice. And um, yeah, but it's out officially November 12th. Um, And yeah, I just want to add to what Ash said that I think it's I think it's a it's an incredibly timely book. It raises some really uh, kind of provocative questions for, for, you know, some, some really big complicated issues that have maybe been glossed over and have, um, and have been kind of marginalized and minimized in the ways that we talk about the Gothic, the ways that we talk about horror uh, in the context specifically of America. But I think maybe as a way, way in the, the, the book was also kind of part memoir as well i know the way that we're talking about it people might think that this is like really abstract but the thing that i really love about the book is the way that you contextualize all of this um all of these complex and 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 uh, nuanced ideas into your own experiences of coming into uh, and living in the goth subculture so maybe we can start there you know could you could you maybe tell us a little bit of, how did you how did you how did you end up as a goth how did you end up yeah. as on the spooky left as we say <laughs> I think I was just born goth. I, I don't, I, it's funny, people ask me that. And it's like, even I remember being really little, like kindergarten. And uh, I remember me and my little friends playing in a cemetery. And there was sort of a hole that would have been dug in preparation for something of this gigantic rectangular work. And us taking the dirt from it and making mud pies out of it and we, <laughs> and we would play like we would play funeral and like one person would be you know the corpse and everyone would like cry over them and stuff um and i've always been sort of fascinated by uh death and the supernatural um and ghosts and uh, you know telekinesis or teleportation or anything sort of um 
otherworldly, you know. And at some point, I guess, I don't know, it was probably like 13 or something like that. Uh, Detroit had really great radio and really great record stores. And I had a friend who was really into music. And I think she might have been the one that introduced me to Susie and the Banshees. Um, either that or I found it on my own. I'm not sure. But it just felt like the music just matched my personality already, you know? Mm. Um, so it wasn't so much that I found this subculture and joined it. Um, I just found the music and I was like, oh my God, this music is speaking to me and it's, it's just expressing what I already feel. And about the same time, I read uh, Interview with the Vampire, like I discovered nice. Anne Rice about the same time. So all of that just sort of, sort of gelled. And, um, you know, I think when I kind of started seeing more of the imagery of goth and, you know, reading Smash Hits magazine and all that stuff and, uh, and seeing what it looked like, I remember um, always feeling a little bit, uh, I say in the book, I felt a bit Blackula-ish because <laughs> my friends who are white, uh, you know, super pale and the bright red lipstick and, you know, the, uh, the layers and layers of eyeliner and the spiky, spiky hair, like they could project goths. You could look at yeah. them across the street and go, oh, yeah, there's goths over there. And even though I felt the same, you know, I was like, I'm one of you guys. And I like the same music and I like the clothes. I, you know, I felt like I wasn't able to look goth or something mm. like the outside wasn't really matching the inside. And I think and this is, you know, this is before the Internet and, you know, Tumblr and Hot Topic mm. and before all of that. So it really was you just kind of making up your own dial and your own expression, however it is that fit you. Um, so there were times when I didn't, I didn't necessarily feel like I was excluded because of my blackness um, on a personal level. Like my friends were my friends and that was it. But I think I always felt a little bit like I wish I could look more obviously like a Ah, so other people out there in the world yeah. could see me and go, oh, yeah, there's a goth over there, you know. Um, and there was also something about being um, a part of a subculture that is really perceived as being primarily white, like a, yeah. a white suburban middle class subculture, you know. And there were times when, you know, I would feel these little pinches of almost guilt, like I was somehow betraying my people, or something by identifying with this subculture that um, that wasn't my own how, um, but it felt like me. But mm. culturally, there was this feeling of I'm supposed to be listening to hip hop, and I'm supposed to be you know dressing like you know a certain way, and I'm supposed to be liking a certain kind of you know movies and TV shows and all of the things in black culture. And I was, wasn't into it. So there were times when I kind of questioned a little bit my blackness. And over the years, like, you learn, like, that's just bullshit. But when you're <laughs> a kid, it's, you know, it can, when you're little, it, it can be a little moment of, of, you know, identity crisis a little bit. At a very young age to have an identity crisis. But that, again, is something that, that is really is is very goth right because the gothic is all about the, the like that feeling of being 
displaced of being of being um not fitting into a particular category and i think one thing in the book that i really like is you talk about the way that the gothic is this combination of aesthetic uh styles or stylization and affective kind of impulses towards the kind of towards the romantic towards Mm -hmm. the nostalgic towards the melancholic um and i just think that's that's such a great encapsulation of what does it mean to kind of uh live gothically is always to live in this sort of slightly out of place uncategorizable unfixed but always with a kind of eye looking backwards at yes. you know the the mysterious past at the at the at the gloom at the romance of the ruined castle yes exactly and i think a lot of people a lot of people have this misconception of of goth or goths as being de- just depressed sullen or angry or something. And goth is ultimately romanticism. Yeah. And it's borrowed straight from, you know, these uh, 19th century cemetery poets, you know, and the, um, you know, the wander of the sea of fog painting and all of these expressions of melancholy that were um, sort of signs of a kind of either deeper sensitivity or, or a more sensitive intellect or something, that there were sort of this positive aspect of melancholy and the nostalgia of that and the looking backwards. Like goth and gothic is all about looking backwards. I think Evan Michelson said it's um, essentially uh, medieval romance, uh, medievalism just revived over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I like that aspect. And I kind of tell people, if you're depressed... Like my depression is sitting on a couch and not moving, right? It's not getting up and putting on makeup and doing your hair and getting a great outfit and listening to music and going to a club. Like that's not what depression looks like. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, and I, I think, mean, I, I think a yeah. lot of people equate depression with with negativity, and I think obviously that, that those two things are interlinked, right? But. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you quote Mark Fisher in the in the book, and Fisher talked about that quite a lot, right? That he wasn't, he was he wasn't he was he put forward a negative critique. He wasn't just being depressed, depressing for the sake of it. Yeah, and I, yeah. And I think that is absolutely part of what appeals to 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 goths, to those who get drawn to the kind of darker side of things, is that it is there are some things which are worth putting forward that negative critique towards. Yes, yes. And it's really about sort of the experiencing the full spectrum of emotions mm. um, and not ignoring the ones that are quote unquote negative and not being afraid, not being afraid of being afraid, not being afraid of being sad. Um, so it's really an embrace. It's an embrace of affect. And I think one of the things that is interesting about um in black history, in the history of slavery, is how much emotions were monitored and controlled and repressed in service of uh, slave trade. You know, like on the coffle when slaves were put on the on the auction block, you know, they were made to dance and laugh and sing or else, you know, they'd be beaten. Um, they couldn't express the terror or the sorrow or... Um, uh, the dread 
that they were feeling because that's not a good selling point. You know, you're not going to buy someone who looks like they're miserable about it, right? So it was all about projecting this idea that uh, black people like being slaves, that they're meant to, to be that way, that it actually makes them happy to be in a mm -hmm. state of that. So in response to that, the sort of outward portrayal of sorrow and of mourning and that kind of vulnerability um, becomes a political act. And I think it's why so much of the civil rights movements and so much of the activism in uh, black culture revolves around mourning and death, you know, from the Emmett Till funeral to say her name and Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter. It's not only fighting against the actual, you know, murder of people and the deaths that have come about because of various types of oppression, but it's also about recognizing the humanity of sorrow. Yeah. And how, you know, one of the, the first things you do when you depersonalize someone is take away their feelings. So being outwardly um, sad <laughs> um, is actually very powerful. It's not necessarily a sign of, of weakness. It's actually a sign of um, of agency and ownership, you know? So one thing, uh, one thing I would like to ask is that, so we were, we were talking about like uh, American Gothic is kind of being collapsed in, into the space of like white Southern Gothic. And yeah. we're talking about like the lost past of, of black American Gothic as, as almost a spectral figure in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering, what would you, if you, if you could, if you could trace for us just a brief history of what you would consider like an effective flow of the Black American Gothic experience, not necessarily mm -hmm. experience, but like history in the United mm -hmm. States specifically. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess if I'm looking at sort of that experience in through this lens of the of the slave trade, um, I think you'd probably get a first sort of taste of that kind of aesthetic in um, probably spirituals, uh, yeah. playing Negro spirituals and field songs and things like that. And the thing about, I mean, it's interesting because I think when I started this project, everyone was like, oh, you're going to talk about the blues because, you know, <laughs> blues equals yeah. sad or something like that. Right. Um, and I was like, you know, like, no, not really. I mean, the blues is actually kind of rather uh, a celebration of the freedom of the body a lot, you mm. know, a lot of uh, a freedom of sexuality and a, and facing problems you never had to face before, like getting a job and paying your bills. And um, all of those things are, are sort of the costs of, of freedom. But, but spirituals were very much about having one eye towards the afterworld, to the kind of freedom of that and the escapism of that, and one eye towards the north, towards literal freedom. Um, so it was this combination of spaces, of spectral spaces and physical spaces, and kind of reckoning and dealing with the experience of, of captivity and how you can escape that by whatever means necessary, you know, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think um, one of the most fascinating things about the music that came up um, was this combination of, of uh, music from Africa blended in with from the recent people who were recently over, recent slaves from, from Africa. Um, and then once that kind of ended and people, um, slaves were here, they were born here, you had generations being born and dying here, and the music that came from that experience. 
and how the a little bit of the loss of the Africanness. Like one of the things I find interesting is in a lot of the uh, um, songs, like working songs or field songs in Africa, uh, they might have had something to do with um, fishing, you know, mm-hmm. and not getting any fish or, you know, something like that. Like, But as a field hand, you don't have that problem. You don't have that kind of fear or dread or problems with fishing because you're not fishing, you know, you're picking cotton for somebody else. Mm. So the language in the songs changed compared to what they were traditionally. And that's what created essentially American music. Yeah. The history of that, you know, um, I do think that I, I, one of the things, I mean, I tell people, I think one of the most goth songs ever is Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. doesn't sound quite right you know you don't it's really know deeply why. haunting yeah it really yeah is. It's, and it's it's not only haunting i think it's a haunted song yeah absolutely and um it's an amazing you know, it's come from america it's an american-based music that's you know jazz and um and it's a it's an act it's a song about an actual event an actual lynching um and taking that horror um, of that event and romanticizing it and talking about, you know, the scent of magnolia in, this, in the pastoral South. There was all of this language of um, romantic beauty combined with horrific language of burning flesh and the smell of burning flesh and things like that. And, um, you know, and the rotting fruit, quote unquote, of, of bodies in the trees. But it's sung in this, this gorgeously dark, lyrical way. And to me, that's kind of what the Gothic is. It's taking something that's repulsive and terrifying and horrifying and putting this kind of patina of beauty and romance or expressing it that way. Um, and I think that's what the Gothic does. It takes the things that are supposed to be dark and scary and horrible and revolting and turning it into something um, pleasurable or something beautiful or something intriguing, you know? To me, that 
song is sort of that's that's the American gothic much more than mm-hmm. William Faulkner. No offense to Faulkner. I mean, Faulkner's amazing, <laughs> but um, but for me, it's not what I think of when I think of um, uh, the American experience. You know, certainly not my you know experience. Um, and I think going from that and moving forward from that, um, I see well, like Beloved again. Toni Morrison's Beloved is probably mm-hmm. the most iconic sort of gothic. Um, book about um, Black Americans. Um, And again, that's based on an actual true story of of a woman who uh, was a runaway slave who escaped to Ohio, um, who was getting caught by the people or uh, the slave catchers were going to get her. And she killed her daughter, her, her baby daughter, to avoid her getting caught and going into a life of slavery, as she would rather her child die than have to live in captivity the way she did. So, so I mean, it's a, the story writes itself, you know. Um, and beloved is sort of the ghost um, or the revenant being of that baby, you know, that um, has come back for a kind of of uh, recognizing and an acknowledgement. And um, that's what, to me, the Black Gothic does. It says, I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. I've been here all along and I'm coming back and I'm going to get you. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's, other, there's other sort of um, ways that I also see it. I've seen a lot of um, memorialization. Like I wrote a paper on uh, murals, memorial mural art, like in Brooklyn and New York. Um, so when someone dies, you know, in the neighborhood or whatever, and someone paints, you know, a gigantic mural in remembrance of that person, mm-hmm. um, it makes that personal experience of loss into public art and into public mourning. Um, so it's taking again something that is tragic and personal and turning it into something much bigger and broader. There are a lot of when I was kind of working on this, there are all these little kind of thumbtacks in my head <laughs> and these strings and I kind of, you know, crazy person conspiracy room, you know, bored of, well, this kind of fits there and that kind of fits there. And yeah, and kind of the more you think about it, the more it's like, Hey, that room, that's, you know, that reminds me of this and that reminds me of that. But yeah. Yeah. I think your I think your book does a fantastic job of connecting all of these things that like, I guess hitherto were pretty disparate. Yeah. And kind of making those into, um, there's a kind of political point to all of this as well, right? That um, I think the key thing that you you were talking about there was this this act of of uh, exposure, of making public, of of recalling, and and kind of you know I think out of anywhere in the world, America is 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 a is a is a place founded by a particular ideological conception of itself. Yes. You, you know the, the 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 shining city on the hill, the kind of yes. the the teleological. Uh, imperialism uh, and i think yeah. what you're saying there about the black gothic is is it is a uh not only a, a practice of memorialization to show the true costs of this but yeah. to force but force a confrontation with it uh, as you say the ghost the ghost always comes back and the ghost has to be uh looked at that ghost has to be acknowledged before you can have any kind of peace 
Exactly. Exactly. And the, the, the trouble with, or one of the many troubles with America is that it's so dependent on that illusion of mm. that idyllic illusion and it clings to it, which means we have a very, very short, um, historical memory. Oh, Cause yeah. anything <laughs> that, yeah, anything that disrupts that illusion, um, gets shut down and it gets repressed again and again and again. Um, and there's only so, you know, there's only so deep you can bury something before it starts to come out <laughs> yeah. of the ground, you know? Yeah. Um, but so much of, of having this country based on the idealized notion of, of something, whatever that is. I mean, I always like the idea of America being an experiment because um, mm. it's never, it's never going to be what it wants to be. But that desire for that, of that whatever point in history this idealized make America great time, whatever that is, um, never, ever existed. Um, but we cling to it really, really desperately, this, this American dream thing. Um, but when you're of a culture where you know that the American dream was never meant for you, mm. um, it, it, it makes you, you, you can't hide. You can't hide in the illusion. You can't hide in the, in the um, falsity of that. You have, to, um, you have to sort of live in that, you know, beyond the veil or the other side of the veil of that where you can kind of see everything a lot more clearly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what was, there's a, there's a section in the book where you're talking about the, the term like getting woke, being woke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really like this idea that it, it, the resonance of, of awake, of, of actually the memorialization of, of those who are no longer here. And this, what you were talking about there, this notion of like seeing beyond the veil, because whilst you were talking, all I could think of was like it, this idea of the American dream is a desire to return to a state of ignorance, right? It's a desire to disavow your yes. own knowledge of what, what has really gone on. And yes. I think the it, where you're talking in the book about what does it mean to actually uh, awaken from something, to see through, uh, to no longer be able to, or never have been, been able to, to, to have that dream, I think is really yeah. powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the things that um, uh, I think I kind of uh, I was talking about thinking about Poltergeist. Poltergeist is probably my favorite um, haunted house movie. I would say I have a lot of favorite scary movies, but Poltergeist is probably my favorite one. And um, and I mentioned this in the book, the very end of the book, uh, when Freeling um, is on that hill overlooking the new development, the, the Queso Verde or whatever new to housing development. His boss is there saying, oh, we're going to have a whole, you know, a whole new complex here, a whole new development there. And there's a cemetery, a very, very old cemetery right behind him, like something from the old world. And he's talking about, oh, we're going to move that. And, you know, loved ones can, can visit um, people in the new location down the street or wherever they're moving the cemetery to. And um, Freeling says, uh, like, oh, okay, I guess that'd be okay. And he's kind of terrified because he's exhausted, you know, because he's been dealing with the culture guys. And his boss says, um, for who? And Freeling says, for whoever might complain. And his boss says to him, no one's complained until now. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of ghosts um, complaining. Like, that's what they do. <laughs> 
That's what a haunting is. That's what the poltergeist is. It's the dead complaining. Yeah. Coming back. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I love, I love that little moment so much. Cause his boss, he was like, who would complain? Who is, who is there to argue with us? Who is there to, 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 to fight against us or say that this is wrong? You know, we've all, we're always on top and we always have the developments. We always plow things down and build them over. That's what we do. Um, who we're plowing over, irrelevant. Who, who, who's, who's there to complain about? And Freeling knows because, you know, his house is being torn apart that there's, there, there are people who have a lot to complain about. I was going to say my favorite thing about that film is like, I, I love that opener because like 30 minutes, 30, 30 minutes after that, we find out exactly who has something to complain about this. Yes. Yes. Right. And it's and it's an it's an army of the dead. <laughs> yes. And the thing that I love about it so much is that, again, when we think about the Gothic or when we think about Gothic literature or old ho- horror movies, we think of a decrepit Victorian mansion <laughs> or a stone castle on a hill, you know, with crumbling remnants and things like that. that like that's kind of the visual. Mm. And in Poltergeist, it is a brand spanking new yep. housing development in the suburbs. Um, it's not an old house. <laughs> it's a it's something completely, completely new. Um, you know, and I've always loved suburban gothic. I've always loved um, that uh, reveal of the the underbelly that comes with trying to create perfection <laughs> or trying yeah, to, right. to yeah. you know what I mean? Like that's, that's yeah. It's like, I've always loved, uh, love that genre of suburban Gothic stuff. Oh, you same. Can, yeah. You, you were um, talking earlier, or I think we were all talking earlier about like America as a specific ideological project designed to repress any kind of critique. And the suburbs are kind of like the perfect emblem of that. Like they are yeah. designed to be, like pure from the perspective of the hegemonic forces of racism and capitalism, et cetera, and so forth. But like they are just bleeding at every possible crack with, with the horror and terror that necessarily constitutes that kind of a project. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And also um, the basis for that is fear. That's what white Mm -hmm. flight is. It's fleeing something. So even the foundation of that kind of idealism is is founded in terror. Even the things that are supposed to be the leave it to beaver, whatever pure, <laughs> you know, idealized, you know, Disney World land or something. Right. The only reason that that exists is out of terror of the other and out of fear of other people and escaping that. You know, um, that our whole country, everything is based on fear. Here. Mm. And what's so there's nothing worse than um, denying fear in the guise of power. Yeah. Um, it's what Trump does. All, that's what he does. Mm-hmm. He is terrified. He is terrified of the position that he's in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he oh, knows. Yeah. yeah. And how that's expressed is through bullying. That's what bullies do. Bullies are essentially incredibly insecure. Um, so they fight back with violence. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's why I think 
um, you know, movies like Get Out or Jordan Peele's Get Out was so important. Um, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, like, Candyman, that's mm-hmm. so important. No, any of these movies that sort of reveal that um, what's kind of lurks underneath um, is, 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 you know, is kind of vital in our culture now. And they're just, they're basically just documentaries. They're not even, <laughs> like, horror movies, you know? Really good jumping off point. You know, it's, it's a curious work. It's where we, we, we've gone. We're about 40 minutes into this episode and we haven't talked about movies yet. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, like speaking of the suburbs. And stuff, so I grew up in Detroit. There are two movies that came out like within ear of each other. Uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, which is my dream my dream movie. I keep saying like <laughs> my 13 year old me. If someone said make a movie, you 13 year old gothic i'd say it'd be a vampire movie that took place in my hometown detroit and uh <laughs> jim jarmusch would do it and tilda swinton would be in it and then boom, <laughs> it just existed so there's that and then it follows and i actually can't remember yeah. who, which came to that and it follows also takes place in detroit it takes place in a suburb on the outskirts of detroit right and in only lovers the vampire adam uh lives in uh it's well it's a neighborhood called brush park and it was one of those neighborhoods that were just been decimated by um riots and arson and you'd have these beautiful huge houses um that were just destroyed so there's patches of kind of nothingness um and where wilderness has taken over um where there's sort of fields of 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 weeds and grass that were never supposed to be there because there used to be a house there you know and this house is all boarded up um and it has and it's very dim uh there's almost no lights in the streets mm-hmm. um which was kind of a real thing because at one point uh the city in order to save money had returned off i think like a third of the lights in some of these neighborhoods of their poorer neighborhoods. So there were whole areas, yeah, there were whole areas that were in darkness. Didn't um, something similar happen in California not too long ago? Yeah, the, the PG&E. Yeah, ha- happening now, yeah. They turned off the power in Beverly Hills, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Uh, so there's this atmosphere of, of kind of gloom and eeriness in the city but in Only Lovers, it's uh, kind of viewed upon as this kind of wistful um, romanticism, you know, and the Adam and Eve, the two vampires are kind of walking through, you know, the old uh, Michigan theater that's now a car park, you know, and they're walking through these streets in this kind of, you know, they've been alive for eons. So this, this little patch in Detroit is just another little blip right mm-hmm. um but in it follows they also use kind of a desolation of the city as uh as a monstrous space so there's kids in the suburbs right but whenever the creature or the monster is kind of manifest that all takes place in the city yeah. so in the beginning when uh the girl's first infected and her boyfriend has strapped her in this, you know, yelling chair to show her, this is what's happening to you. That's at the old Packard plant. 
um, which is one of the most sort of famous ruins <laughs> probably in America. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, when they go to look for um, the guy who's doing the infecting, he's escaped to the city. So he's in a poor black neighborhood um, that's blighted with um, uh, you know houses that are falling apart. That's where he's chosen to hide. Hmm. And there's this moment where, so there's these both there both these parallel kind of scenes in both of these movies where there's a drive into the city or drive through the city. And in Only Lovers, Adam is like, oh, that's where Jack White used to live. And, you know, it's kind of this nice little <laughs> yeah. thing. And then only, and in It Follows, uh, there's this moment where there's this kind of there, this solemn march into the city to fight this foe and all of this, like, gravitas. And one of the characters says, um, when I was little, my, uh, my parents never let me go past Eight Mile uh, because that's where the city began. So there's this idea, the city meaning, you know, basically black neighborhoods. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's treated with this kind of um, uh, daring, fearful entry into battle with this monster or something. Um, and that's equated with going into the city, you know? <laughs> um, and it's a lot of it. I mean, that's kind of what White Flight was. It was all about keeping all of that away. So we can have our kind of nice. And the thing with also with Detroit is there is a very, very sharp line between um, the have and have nots. Um, and I think, again, I mean, it's resurging. It's coming back. It's the Renaissance city. But when I was there, it was you would cross a street and the other side of the street would be you know, pristine and lovely and the roads would be smooth and there'd be no garbage um, versus the other side of the street. Um, It was very, very delineated. Um, But I thought, you know, it's sort of interesting that they're both using these city as the sort of built-in sort of mise-en-scene for horror and for terror, you know. Um, But one is a gothic treatment, meaning a romanticized treatment and the other is um you know a kind of very classic horror movie movie trope of going into a scary space there's something really interesting about that uh, which suggests that if you if you take it take the kind of gothic line the gothic tradition that only love is left alive does it's that the kind of contemporary ruined castle is the post-industrial city yes like that's yes exactly you know that if it was if it was the 1850s it would be oh don't go <laughs> by old lord salisbury's place they say right. it's haunted but right. now it's like post post reagan post the deliberate kind of destruction of that social fabric it's become it's become a place that you know immortal monsters can wander through and go oh, do you remember when when this was oh wasn't that it's it, there's a kind of nostalgia to it um and i yes. think it's really interesting that that distinction of of horror is one that is essentially rooted in in white flight because it's uh you know it's inescapable it's happened yeah. the suburbs is the place that disavows its own history right it's a place yes. that only exists because of that growth of urbanization because of a, and a kind of emergent 
um, uh, white middle class and they've all tried to disavow their 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 connections they've all tried to kind of go there is no history we it, we all just woke up here one day right exactly <laughs> and so and the, being reminded being reminded of of this is where it all started and this is what you have allowed to happen yes that's the yes. trauma that can't ever be acknowledged yeah and the thing that i love about sort of the modern ruin um is this kind of flattening of time. Um, mm. It's looking at, um, you're in the present, looking at your immediate past. This isn't um, the, the ancient rooms of Rome or something. This is something that you remember. I remember that mall. I remember that store. You know, I remember there used to be, you know, a church here or whatever. So it's your own, it's your own memory. It's your own personal historical memory that's dissolved yeah but it's also this odd glimpse of what the future would be it's this glimpse of a sort of post-apocalyptic space where human beings don't exist where there are no more people um because it's not about tearing something down and building something new it's taking something and abandoning it and just leaving it. And that's the eeriness of it. It's the idea that it's not like something is coming back to clean this up or to fix it or to tear it down. Um, It has just been left. Um, So it's sort of seeing a little bit of our future and our past at the same time. Um, which is what's so kind of thrilling about it. You know, like yeah. I, I hate, I have a love hate relationship with ruin porn. Um, <laughs> I love, I love these images. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, there's, there's this little burst of books about ruins in Detroit that came out like maybe 10 yeah. years ago, I guess. And they're just these incredible uncanny images, like the inside of an office building that, uh, the entire floor is covered in moss somehow, mm-hmm. or like a basketball court in a gym in a school, and the floors are so warped, it just looks like waves. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, an old police station where all of like the mugshots and the fingerprints and all of the paperwork, all of that sort of ephemeral stuff of. Um, of sort of office life and you know and capitalist life are, are just left and abandoned there. So you see all of these ephemeral things that are supposed to be just bureaucratic garbage as become sort of immortalized, you know, yeah. forever. You know, um, so there is something really thrilling about looking that. But the reason why that exists is because of economic decline because of economic inequity, um, you know, because of huge structural issues that um, uh, destroy other people. I mean, all of those empty spaces are jobs that people lost or homes Mm -hmm. that people have lost. Communities. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's this, I always kind of try to, the only thing that that I don't, get that kind of um guilty feeling for our abandoned malls 
I just love abandoned malls. I, like, I don't give a shit that they're abandoned. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think it's because right? like, the mall is such an insidious thing to begin with. You know, yes. like, yeah, people worked and loved and lived there, but like people work and, and love and live in prisons too, but fuck prisons, right? <laughs> Exactly. And also, the only reason why those big, huge shopping malls exist is, be again, because it was escaping yep. the city centers and the downtowns that became, mm -hmm. you know, mostly, you know, black or minority yeah. um, parts of the city. So you're fleeing. So those can those can rot in hell. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, yeah, we, we here at Horror Vanguard have a decidedly anti-shopping mall stance. Right. Yep. Absolutely. So um, one thing, um, yeah, so one thing about the Gothic that is just like I, I absolutely love. One of my favorite functions is it kind of allows us to turn our attention back to this monstrous past and to, and to forcibly sometimes re-examine the the bits of our history that we try to stuff down and we try to hide away. And you know we we see that we see this all over Gothic literature and Gothic cinema and and indeed even in ruin porn, right? Like yeah. these, these these spaces are haunted by the absence. Of, of the people that should be there and we're forced to kind of look at that space. But I think there's a movie there. There happens to be a movie that I think fits the conversation very well that that comports to a lot of what we're talking about here. And and, you know, like I my heart, my heart is like and now we're going to talk about Scream Blackula Scream. But no, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think uh, I think it'd be cool if we talked a bit, uh, if you'd like, about uh, Candyman. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um... And I, oh my God, I cannot wait for this new version to come out. Yeah. Um, but again, this is another thing. Candyman was based or influenced or inspired by a true event um, about the uh, Cabrini Green housing projects in Chicago. Yeah. And at the time, um, I think this was the 80s, it was probably one of the most violent places in the city where there oh, were, yeah. um, you know, oh, you're from Chicago, right? Yeah, and you could still find, like, not really people from the city anymore, but, like, people from the suburbs will still be like, oh, I'll, I would never go near Cabrini Green. I don't know. And I'm like, yeah. you're like, you are 20 years behind the times, my man. Right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, so there was this incident where there was a woman, an old woman, who um, was uh, shot in her apartment. And there was a strange anomaly in the architecture of these buildings in which there was a space in the walls. So maintenance or whoever could move throughout the building um, sort of in between the, the, the apartments, sort of like a crawl, like a crawl space, but much bigger. Mm -hmm. And they could ask, access the pipes and, you know, electrical stuff or whatever. So that was an access point. And what uh, people were doing uh, was because there was no uh, kind of wall separating the bathroom cabinets. It was just the bathroom cabinet was just exposed. Once you were behind the wall, you just saw the back of it, right? So all you had to do was push it out or push it in, and you had access to that person's apartment. Mm. Um, so that was what was happening is there were these robberies that were happening where people were um, – and that's exactly the plot of Candyman. That's what Candyman yeah. is doing. Um, uh, the the you know the master student working on her thesis on on um, folk tales or urban legends goes to the site where a woman has died 
and um, sees that her bathroom cabinet can just pull right out and there's exposed to the rest of the, uh, you know, to the apartment next door. Um, And so what happened in real life is uh, someone came in and shot this woman in a robbery. And um, I think I'm completely blanking now, but I think she called 911 or her neighbor called 911, but they didn't come. Uh, they called again and they didn't come. And uh, in the, I think the first call, I think she was like on the 80th, she's on a really high, high floor. And, um, or like the 17th floor or the 18th floor or something like that. And when she called 911, and this just breaks my heart, when she's saying, I've been shot, she says to the you know dispatch, the elevator is working, which suggests that she was afraid that they wouldn't come if the elevator was broken because they wouldn't bother going up the stairs to try to save her. Yeah. So she's like saying, I'm giving you incentive to come and save my life. Like you don't even have to walk. You can take the elevator, you know? Um, so 911 didn't come. And I think a neighbor knew that there was something wrong and went to the super, the landlord or the superintendent and said, break down the door. You have to get in here. I think there's something wrong. The superintendent didn't want to do that because he didn't want to get in trouble with management. Yeah. Right. So he said no. Uh, and finally, she kept pestering and pestering. And so finally, the superintendent um, got in there. And I think this is like three days later. And she's dead. You know, like she's been dead for, you know, two days. Um, so it's this combination of the this fear of management from the superintendent to, that's not saving this woman's life. There's the um, complete apathy of the police force. Because um, to them, it's like people get shot Cabrini Green all the time. Like, yeah. why is this any different? Um, so there's this, you know, you know, fear of, of powers that be. There's this apathy towards that particular population um, that led to that event, right? Um, and in Candyman, um, what has happened is like, someone has, you know, has been dying because someone's crawling through the bathroom cabinets, right? But Candyman, the 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 ghost, the spirit, the monster, whatever you want to call it, is the returned ghost, what have you, boogeyman from a man who had died. I think this is. I don't know when it's supposed to be. It's like slavery times or whatever, who um, was having an affair with a white woman and he was lynched and they cut off his hand and like put honey or something all over him and covered him with bees. So he died from bee stings. And so he's come back for revenge. Right. Um, and he has a hook. Can you say candy man in the mirror five times? And he comes in and gets you, you know, Um so even in the movie, even in the historical sort of interpretation of that, you have an actual real life event that kind mm-hmm. of is informing the structure of the movie. But then even in the mythology of the monster or the creature Candyman, that's also based on things that actually happen was the mm-hmm. lynching of a black man uh, for associating with a white woman. Um, that's a, 
was a basic part of our history. You know, that's a regular thing that happened. So even though it's a, um, you know, a dramatization, even though it's a fictionalization of, of, of this story, the thi- it's based on real, actual events and real, actual trauma. Um, all, you know, all... It's not even like you have to change much. You know what no. I mean? We're just going <laughs> to say, we'll just make him immortal and bees come out of his mouth. Other than that, <laughs> it's just the truth, you know? Right. I think, yeah. I think what's really interesting about what you've said is, is the way that you've drawn these connections between a very kind of contemporary, uh, racist, classist politics of 1980s America, you know, the disdain towards working people, towards black people, and linked it to... Like, you know, Reagan's not an abnormality. Yeah. Right. It's just yeah. the latest. It's the latest iteration. It's the it's the continuation of the horror story. Uh, and the only honest thing to do is to, as you said earlier, acknowledge the fear, acknowledge the horror and learn from it. Yeah. I mean, that's the worst part about um, when you're trying to deny this. I think there's we have this horrible machismo in this country that equates fear with um, weakness or something. Um, and there is incredible power and strength in confronting your own fears and dealing with it and looking it straight in the eye, you know. With Cabrini uh, Green still in mind, especially like... I think for me, like, that's the ultimate horror and the ultimate tragedy here, right? Like, Candyman still walks the streets of Chicago if we accept the metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. The resident, like, the last Cabrini Green structure was demolished, I think, in 2011. But, like, those those residents weren't, like, given better housing options. They were just displaced to the south and west sides into similarly crappy places. But places that aren't on the near north. You know, the near north is very visible. There's a lot of universities. Cabrini Green had a lot of exposure. But, like, the south and the west sides don't have that. Right. Yeah. So you, you force yeah. these people into silence and like what's at the site of Cabrini Green now? There's a goddamn target <laughs> where Cabrini right. Green used to be. Right. Oh, well, it's what I just was um uh rewatching Candyman actually just uh yesterday. And I had completely forgot the very beginning of the movie where you have the grad student who's doing mm-hmm. the research and she's looking at a picture of Cabrini Green and a picture of her own apartment. It's kind of very luxury con condo apartment yeah and it's one of those things i just i think people just kind of forget forget it and what she realizes is the layout of her condo is exactly the same as caprini green Mm -hmm. but because i guess so her her building was supposed to be the project but because there wasn't enough of a barrier i guess in because of the roads or the way the city is structured um you know the 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 gold mile was just that what they call it the gold mile the shopping area oh Where, yeah. yeah 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 like there it wasn't there wasn't enough of a block between the nice neighborhoods <laughs> and this projects so they turned it into condos instead of it being you know low income housing they were like this is too close to rich people <laughs> so we'll just turn it into luxury condos if you live in Chicago for even more than like a week, the Golden Mile is like the shittiest place in the city. It's like 
chorus and like generic it's the most generic shopping nightmare like there's a couple like really beautiful gothic looking churches that are like imprisoned in like this 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 kind of like fortress built by zara and (laughs) h&m oh god but i I mean it's funny because it's one of those can't you know candy man is just the movie that keeps on giving it's like (laughs) yeah he just finds something new every single time. I'm sorry, I don't um, know why I thought that was so funny. <laughs> I just when, when you said that, the visual of just like a man shooting bees out of his mouth came into my head, and I'm like, yeah, you know what, you're right. Yeah. You know those are real bees? Those are real bees. Seriously? Yeah. How did they shoot that? Oh my god, I have to go find out how they yeah, shot yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, and you know fantastic. what? He got, um, what's his name, Tony, oh my god, what is his name? Um, the actor got paid extra. He got paid like an extra. I don't oh, know. Tony Todd. Yeah, he got paid extra money for like each B or something like that. So he was what? like, God, God damn yeah. right, he did. Yeah, <laughs> oh man, yeah, that yeah. is that is some actors guild shit right there. I love yeah. that. And that is got, you know, hardcore. Those were all real bees. That is and, hardcore. And I think what they did is something very, very, very weird. Actually, there's a great documentary on Netflix called Horror Noir that that they talk about it. It's fantastic. I think they did something strange where they got, they like drugged him a little bit. The bees, I mean, not Tony. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, they like did something so they were kind of slower and sleepier yeah. or something. So they weren't quite as aggressive. I, I might be mixing, you know, kind of my own known stories, but. Um, I mean, to be honest, I would want to be drugged just a little bit if I'm going to have a mouthful <laughs> of live bees. Right. <laughs> oh man, that that I'm not going to be able to get that detail out of my head. That's that's incredible. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I always I always just thought that that was just like a really clever I, I don't know like double exposure or something. But wow. Yeah, shout out to Tony Todd. Yeah, Tony Todd, if you're listening, uh, kudos, man. That that's that's acting. Yeah, that's putting in the work. I know, right? So, um, <laughs> to, to to try and pick pick up from 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 Tony Todd's incredible mouthful of bees, uh, I'm going to call that a stunt because that is that is dangerous. That stunt. Yeah. Um, uh, so oh. you had you had mentioned uh, horror noir. Uh, the I think it was released on Shutter, a documentary about Black yes. American horror cinema. Uh, yes, Shutter. Yeah. So so that came out I, this year or last year. It came out very recently. Last year, I think. Last year, yeah. Yeah. So so it's pretty pretty con- contemporaneous to your own text. So this is yeah. kind of like this is a really broad question. So so feel free to kind of do with it what you will. <laughs> but what do you think about like this particular moment in kind of like American culture more broadly that we're kind of seeing the, this this idea of like Black American horror, Black American uh, uh, Gothic coalescing and coming to the forefront and people people starting to like uh, uh, contextualize and put these ideas together. I mean, it's interesting. I think there's uh, there's already sort of this history of uh using sort of the black experience as a metaphor for something else in 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 horror movies i mean tales from the hood was has been out yep. for i don't know how many years you know, right um uh night of the living dead um absolutely mm-hmm. extraordinary had a black man who's the hero right yep. at a time where that was never the case <laughs> who is the man in charge 
He's in control. He's taking care of business. He's slapping a hysterical white woman, which is <laughs> like, it's like, this is what, 64? Like, insane. Right. It's an, in so, that, that visual is intense if yeah. you really consider when this movie's being made. Yeah, he would be dead. He would yeah, like today it's, it, it plays kind of like, oh, it's silly because we think about, like, I don't know. Uh, uh, Dolomite or Petey Wheatstraw or something yeah. and it plays into that history but no at that time period like that visual alone is just so powerful yeah yeah and um, the thing that's so fascinating about the ending is so they've survived the night you know he's you know saved the day whatever he's coming out of the house and the cops are there who've been killing zombies right they see mm -hmm. him come out of the house and just immediately kill him they immediately shoot him um they don't acknowledge they don't even he's, he's just immediately a monster yeah um and the end footage is all black and white stills like grainy black and white still mm -hmm. photographs so it looks like photo it looks like a like a newspaper like a photojournalism yeah. um so um at that moment the the fictional monster movie turns into a documentary a little bit at the end. And, you know, his body gets thrown onto the pile of, you know, of burning, burning zombies like everybody else, you know? So I think that there has been, people have been, and filmmakers have been talking about this and doing it here and there, mm -hmm. but I really think it wasn't until um, Get Out that, yeah it suddenly kind of gelled and the, uh, the popularity of it, the, um, the brilliance of the movie and the way people were talking about it, um, has brought this idea to light in, mm -hmm. um, in a new way, you know, that people really haven't thought about before. Um, I mean, I get, you know, they did a movie version of beloved, you know, there are all sorts, yeah. there are all sorts of things in, in horror movies where that might have been the, um, you know, part of the plot or part of the story. Um, but it wasn't, I don't think it was seen in this greater historical context in this greater social movement. And I also think a lot of that is, you know, get out is happening in the same time that Black Lives Matter is happening. Oh, you know? yeah. So I think these two larger social, this larger social movement of, um, you know, the battle of, of police brutality and, um, you know, the sort of the death of the black body over and over and over again in media, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're living at a time where I'd be on Facebook seeing videos of black people getting shot and dying. Yeah in my Facebook feed and on Twitter or whatever. And it was becoming a part of, you know, the visual, like this daily visual, um, input of, of death, you know, and particularly, um, state state sanctioned death yeah. of black bodies. Right. So that's happening at the same time, like get out is coming out, right? So yeah. I think it's really hard to separate um, these two things. And I think um, it's made people want to talk about this even more and looking back in history and saying, wait a minute, you know, there's a, there's a whole other examples of, of films and black people in films and how we've been portrayed, um, you know, since uh, birth of the fucking nation, yeah. you know? <laughs> But yeah, so I, th I think that now 
Um, it's just a very, it's a particularly um, kind of vibrant and interesting time to be talking about this. Um, Absolutely. The idea of the social horror movie, you know? Um, I mean, I think it, we've seen it in things like the Stepford Wives, you know, in terms of feminism <laughs> yeah. and things like that, you know? Yep. And Get Out is kind, of, is kind of like the Stepford Wives version of, of you know, blackness and, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, that sounds like a tagline that would be like on 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 like the Blu-ray release. Right. I think I think that's a really clever way of kind of framing uh, uh, what that what this movie is doing and like uh, uh, the contemporary social climate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think it it isn't that suddenly horror has become about the social. It's suddenly that people mm-hmm. have have started to go, oh, yes. maybe this this isn't just a metaphor. Maybe yeah. this is actually yeah. the lived experience of huge swathes yes. of of a of a culture of a nation, yeah. rather than yeah. just going, oh well, what is this really about? Because this can't, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I was um. Oh, oh, go on. Sorry. No, go on, Ash. Sorry. I was just gonna say, like, um, so so while while you were talking about kind of like, like 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 uh, John, your comment and um kind of the broader conversation we're having made me think of, um, so we, we just did an episode with, uh, Leslie from the show struggle session, a fantastic show, a shout out. <laughs> uh, but one, one thing he was talking about is that like, uh, you know, in, in a sense, like right now, like if, if the black American experience and the experience of being a cinematographer are deeply interwoven together, right? Like we're constantly seeing like so many live streamed interactions with police, right? Because you never really yeah. know in that context. And we're seeing this more and more, right? Yeah. And, it, and it makes yeah. me think back to like, like kind of like in the history of black cinema, like there's always been like, like, like if you know, Blackula had this, uh, Petey Wheatstraw, The Devil's Son-in-Law had this. I'm thinking of just like garbage B-movies for some reason, but also like yeah. Candyman. Get Out takes everything to like this entirely new level in terms of how it's handling all of this metaphorical content and yeah. the social context it's acting in. And also I think a big part of it is that Jordan Peele um, kind of called it social, I think he called it social horror. I think mm-hmm. that's what he, and he said, you know, I'm making a whole series of, films about this you know yeah so it was um it was the fact that he kind of like kind of labeled it like this is an actual thing because all horror all horror in literature and film or whatever is all about real social anxieties um you know the big giant ant movies of the 50s (laughs) were all about you know your nuclear stuff or you know frankenstein's a fear of scientific discovery or what have you, or fear, you know, Dracula's a fear of, uh, you know, the other or foreigners or, um, or syphilis. I once saw uh, a paper about comparing oh, interesting, uh, yeah. syphilis to, to, to Dracula. Um, so, yeah, so the, so the idea that um, horror as an expression of social anxiety um, and social trauma is is not is not new at all, but the idea of um, kind of actually saying it and labeling it so yeah and and talking about um, like one of the things I thought was interesting is I think it was the Golden Globes or something and they put Get Out in the comedy category. Oh yikes! Um, <laughs> yeah, because I think that it was one of those are people don't really know how to talk about horror um, as actually good cinema. You know, like horror is dismissed 
all the time. You mm -hmm. know, you have to get to Silence of the Lambs or something, that kind of level, to get sort of like Academy recognition. Yeah, uh, and, and Silence wasn't even marketed as a horror film. It was marketed right. as, as like a psychological thriller because we couldn't right. say, we couldn't yeah. say, no, no, it's a spooky movie. It's a scary movie. <laughs> right, it's right. about a cannibal. Yeah, and I think... Um, I think Jordan Peele said uh, in response to that um, something like Get Out isn't a horror movie, it's a documentary or something like that, yeah. you know. Um, but the fact that, it, yeah, it's pretty darn insulting that they put it in that weird category. There's just a lot that like the gatekeepers of like the hegemonic power of culture that is wielded by Hollywood would be deeply uncomfortable addressing in, in within the text of Get Out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. You can't admit that this is a text which explicitly addresses and implicates you. Right. Because, mm -hmm. because that would mean that maybe your position is not uh, something that you've earned through your hard work and your capitalist bootstrapping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But through kind of systematic violence and horror, which yeah. you are kind of culpable for. And the other thing I think is really brilliant about Get Out is that it's it doesn't it's not about you know some you know conservative Southern whatever, yeah. It's this white liberal guilt thing, you know. Mm. You know? It's playing on um, like when he says, "I would have voted for Obama a third time" or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. And they talk about how like Classic. you know black is really you know black black skin is really cool now and it's really great and all this like. The yeah. strange, it's it's the, um, it's not the way we're used to thinking about blackness and horror. We're used to thinking mm -hmm. about it in terms of lynching, in terms of violence, in terms of racism. Um, but looking at the sort of the, the microaggression of, of, of white liberal guilt as being just as dangerous. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's that, there's that great, uh, I love the opening scene. Mm -hmm. Where he's talking on his phone and he's like, "Not today, I'm not getting, not getting lost in this, right. creep, in this yep. creepy ass suburb." Right. In this because creepy because what what what's going to happen if you have to stop and ask all of these nice white people where you you know for directions? I mean, how is that interaction going to go? I mean, I've had that experience, mm. and I'm like, I'm you know, I I. Dressed like a Puritan most of the time, you know, got freaking two master's degree. I'm a pretty, you know, I'm a pretty like square person ultimately. And there's a really beautiful public garden uh, in New York, kind of above at the top of New York. And it's absolutely called Wave Hill. And it's the views are absolutely beautiful. And I took this really bizarre way to get there. Like I didn't know there was an easy bus you could take or a van or I don't know, with this really weird way. So I ended up walking through um, this extremely affluent neighborhood. Like it's one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the, the city. Um, and I'm walking and I'm, it's, I'm all by my, and it's the daytime too. And I'm walking and I kind of don't really have an idea of how far I have to go. And I'm just kind of picking up my pace and I'm thinking to myself, I hope nobody fucking calls the cops on me for being in this yeah. neighborhood. Mm. So even though it, it's sort of so embedded in the subconscious, it becomes this very, um, insidious everyday dread of that, um, yeah, of that 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 fear, that fear of white fear, that uh, that that's what um, 
that that classic line of I was afraid for my life, so I shot. You know, the scary black man, you know, or the scary black child. I was going to say, or the child with a a toy squirt gun, as the case may be. Yeah. Um, The, you know, the woman who are calling the cops on the guys in the Starbucks or whatever. Oh, the guy's Um, just trying to have a barbecue. Yeah. 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 Um, White fear is deadly for black Mm -hmm. people. Yeah. Um, and it's really, it's it's the it's terrorism. That's the point of terrorism yeah. is power through instilling fear. It's just a very odd kind of mind fuck that a person who's in power, the person who has authority, um, and who has the authorities um, on their side, um, can wield fear as an idea of control, right? Because I think mm. in order for you to be afraid of something, if you're the apex predator or something, <laughs> if you're on top, the only thing that you would be afraid of is something monstrous. Yeah. Is yeah. something um, other. Is something not quite human, you know, because other than like, if I have all the money, if I have all the power, if I have all the control, why would I be afraid of this 12-year-old boy? You know, because I don't see that as a 12-year-old boy. I see it as a scary black man. And that scary black man isn't a human being. It's a monster, right? So the only way that you can kind of justify that kind of um, violence and retaliation for of being, quote, afraid for your life is that that person on the other end of that gun has to be inhumanly yeah. powerful, you know? Like, how do you, you know, what's the, what's the, what's, who else is there above human beings to be scared of? You know, yeah. wild animal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, something, yeah, that's the only thing that, makes sense is I have to make this human being seem different or more than human for me to be afraid of something that I have power over in the rest of the world and the rest of and, life, you know? And that's often put couched in, in, in the language of the supernatural, right? Or the, yes. or the spirit, spiritual, you know, there's, there's talk, like you said, this talk of, you know, superhuman strength or, or whatever kind of uh, excuse that uh, cops will come up with mm-hmm. is, is yeah. like, it's always designed to, to, it taps into this same gothicizing discourse. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of it was Michael Brown or someone described um, described him as being or the cop described him as being um, possessed that he seemed yeah. possessed. By something, yep. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and this is this is what 17, 18 year old kid. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But again, that's that's what's been going on forever, ever mm-hmm. in this country. You know, um, that's the way oppression works mm-hmm. is dehumanization um the only way you can kind of justify the buying and selling of human beings and the separating from the families and the beating and the torture and the rape is if they're not really if they're not really human you have to kind of you have to destroy empathy 
mm-hmm. a little bit. You know, you have to turn that off. And a lot of ways, that's that's making white people monstrous. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's take it's it's also destroying their own humanity by saying you are capable of doing this and this is normal for you. Um, so it's you know screwed on both sides. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And at the moment, you see you see uh, the kind of a new version of this i saw the story just today which was that i think they said almost like thousands of of migrant children who were separated from their parents have Mm -hmm. been put up for adoption Mm -hmm. which is is genuinely horrifying i don't yeah i don't even under uh, how evil do you have to be to to participate i I know but this goes back to exactly what you were talking about with this, the lack of empathy, the, the deliberate destruction of um, shared humanity, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I think that just that just underscores exactly what you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I think something like 700 women were have gone missing. Yeah. Detention centers. 700. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, man, just disappeared. And like even even for the people who managed to get out, right? Like I'm never going to forget. There's, there's a video clip of of a little boy who managed to be liberated from one of these fucking detention centers, and you know his, his dad is or he's just in tears, right? Mm-hmm. You know he's got his son back, and and they they can be together, and the little boy is just like he, he has just been broken. Right. Mm. He's not he's not moving. You know, he's just kind of staring blankly. He's not like it's not what you want. You want him to run into his dad's arms and for them to cry. And like, mm. you traumatized. know, just yeah, yeah. He's just it's, it's so traumatized. deeply hurt. And it's just this is evil, like capital yeah. E evil. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? We're going to see we're going to see in the culture in movies and film and television and everything what this has done, you know, what are the what what are going to be the cultural manifestations of this moment um, in our history? What is that gonna What is that gonna look like? What is that gonna gonna turn into? Because um, all they're doing are creating in the you know whole generations of um, traumatized kids who are going to be traumatized adults mm-hmm. with PTSD who are going to be angry you know we're going to have to deal with what has happened to them you know it's not like yeah they're they're i don't know i just hope god i just hope there's some kind of you know nuremberg trial type thing happening i don't know but yeah totally (laughs) yeah yeah, like yeah, and I think like that's that's something that we learn from the study of the Gothic and from from being yeah. like like knee deep in horror all the time, right? Is that like those things that become monstrous, right? If you face them as monstrosities, you will in turn make yourself monstrous. You'll repeat the cycle. You'll rekindle the system. Yes, you know. But but when you face the monstrous on its own terms, when you when you learn to understand why it's there and what it's doing, mm. you yep. know, you can renegotiate these spaces and and how they function yep yeah frankenstein was the doctor not the monster yeah 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 yeah. and i think that's something i think that's something that the book does incredibly well i think oh yeah we we try and do um something similar from from our point of view through through the show is that like the critique of horror is not 
like it, it has all of this aesthetic it has all of this affect but it is a moral and political critique yeah you know we 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 like things are horrific and it is uh not only right but necessary that we insist on naming them as such yeah because there is no other way of kind of uh refusing to acquiesce with the kind of ideological duvet that would seek to kind of obscure all of that <laughs> you know where people yeah. go, you know you see it all the time when people go oh you're complaining about uh trump but does that mean it was bad when uh it wasn't as bad when obama did this and you go no it was bad oh, then it was bad <laughs> then too like bad history bad is a horror story yes <laughs> history is a horror story and and that's that's why that's why i think the book is so great because through your own experiences and through this incredible context and and uh tradition of the black gothic that you that you explore we can make that point again in a really powerful way yeah yeah i think that, yeah. that really is one of the things that makes this such a beautiful work of art like this book is just fantastic thank you <laughs> so much um yeah it was uh i cram a whole lot of stuff in a relatively slim volume but i think it's just because <laughs> there's just so much to talk about and the more you start you just kind of keep going and going and going um so you know my hope is that you know people will read this and you know you know, take nuggets here and there and go like, oh my God, I, I, I've been thinking about this forever. Now I'm going to go explore this or I'm going to explore <laughs> that. Like, I think, I think there's so many things in there that can be blown out, you know, into larger, oh, yeah. into larger things. And I think one of the things that I think is important is that it's not, this isn't just theory and it's not just, um, history. Um, it's lived experiences, you know, yeah. and I think, I think the more people can talk about, um, their own struggles and their own, um, pain with dealing with injustice, you know, with dealing with inequality, um, but the more you, more people tell their own stories about it, yeah. um, the more, uh, the more human it is. And it's not sort of an abstract theoretical problem, but there are, there are million little individual special problems, you know, yeah. it's not just an idea, you know? So, um, I think that's why they ended up talking about myself a lot more than I thought. I would because mm -hmm. it just became really hard. It became impossible to talk about these issues without saying, Oh, I have, I have a story about that. Yeah. You know, I have a story about being afraid of the cops. You know, I have a story about, you know, um, a dog getting, you know, being scared of a dog who I thought hated black people or whatever, you know, like, um, I have a story about the ruined houses in, in Detroit and the, you know, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what I was hoping to do. Uh, is yeah. there anything anyone wanted to add on our way out? As, as a little end thing, I will, I will, I just want to give it a shout out to M Lamar. Yes. yes that's, is, that's what I was hoping um, for. Yeah. And I am, um, I'm actually going to be doing a kind of in conversation with him. No at, way. Yeah. At, uh, McNally Jackson in Williamsburg in New York city on November That's 20th. So, so cool. Uh, 
we're going to be is having. This, a is this going to be um, recorded at all? I don't know. I hope if so. It is, if it is, do let us know. I would love yeah. to 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 look at all the insight that's going to come out of that. Yeah, um, because M. Lamar um, essentially has, is in his art is doing exactly everything that I'm talking about, and he's been doing it. <laughs> and he is um, uh, he's goth. You know, he's a, like a, yep. he calls himself a Negro goth. The outfit is perfect. You know, mm-hmm. the skinny black jeans and the the, the dark hole under the eyes and oh, the yep. cross necklace and all of that. It screams, you know, goth or black metal or something like that, right? Yep. Um, but his music is um, both. It's operatic. Like yeah. he sings in a. Um, I think it's called a. I'm going to get this wrong because I always get this wrong. I'm going to say uh, <laughs> countertenor. It's like a male soprano. Right? Countertenor? Mm-hmm. So he sings in this almost like Leontine Price, black female opera singer uh, with this uh, injection of the Negro spirituals, right? But with this like kind of growling angry primal sounds that are like Diamanda Gallus, you know? Um, so there's this combination of sort of, of goth and punk and opera and mm-hmm. gross spirituals and all of his music. And he also does films, um, uh, his films accompanying, accompanying this music and kind of performances and his lyrics and his music is all about all of this it's all about the residual trauma of the suppression of black people and he mm-hmm. sings about lynching and he sings about um you know uh slaves in the field and he sings about um you know the, the master you know castrating someone like so um everything that that he's doing I, you know i would say i really just want to like staple my name to his forehead and just like here <laughs> this is my book right here in emblem <laughs> um, so uh yeah so I, I would just recommend people check him out well uh thank you again thank you again for coming on uh you know uh this is this has been a fantastic conversation and again uh look for look for uh lila taylor's latest book darkly black history and america's gothic soul wherever fine books are sold and we will have the link from the uh, uh for the official repeater books uh website uh in the show notes and thank you for coming on thank you this has been fun this is good thank you for for giving me the opportunity to babble on about all this <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay Stay spooky. And today is a very special episode because we are joined uh, uh, by a fantastic guest. Uh, today we have Layla Taylor on, author of the upcoming book, Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul. Layla, how's it going? Hi. Um, it's pronounced Leela. God! God! <laughs> I'm so sorry. So, okay, so I was, I was two in my head. That's in the like, book, Ash. No, no, I was, that's what did it. Because I was like, there's a part in the book. Where she goes through explaining her, and so it can't be how I'm thinking how I should pronounce it. And I just totally, oh. 
let's 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 do that again. That is not that is not how this is going to go. Leave it in. Leave it in. Leave it in. These cuts are going straight to the crypt.